So welcome to the final evening of the 2023 T2 Leadership Retreat. It's been special. Um, we've got one more guest. And what I'm glad about is I don't have to sit up here. He's going to do the whole thing on his own, and then we'll do some Q&A at the end. So I'm just going to start off by introducing our guest, and I'm going to enjoy it as much as you guys with a glass of wine. We're very lucky. Um, I've worked with him on a couple of events, and um, I I've witnessed it firsthand, and it's phenomenal. So I'm really glad that we was able to, um, you know, to, to bring him here. I sent him one text. We'd not spoken for about six months to a year. I sent him one text. He responded instantly and said, when is it? I told him. He said, no problem. Count me in. That's the testament to this guy. Honestly, he's phenomenal. He's a legend of rugby. He um, played for New Zealand between 1986 and 1997. He made 92 appearances. 1987, he was part of the World Cup winning team. And he captained New Zealand to a series win over the British Lions in 1993. He's phenomenal. He will give us an absolute send-off from the 2023 Leadership Retreat. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sean Fitzpatrick. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, I feel as I've got to call you Jono. Uh, so you've got Jono and Sean Fitzpatrick here tonight. Um, but it's wonderful to be here. Um, as uh, Martin said, that is the way we start work as All Blacks. Um, how many English do we have in the room? So quite a, quite a few who don't really like the haka, do you? Because <laughs> uh, you don't know what the haka is. So haka is New Zealand. Uh, it's not the All Blacks, uh, although most of our sporting teams do a haka. Haka is from our indigenous people, uh, the Maoris. Uh, we were colonised 1845, very young country. Before that, uh, the, Maori, the Maoris have been there for 700 years, and they used to have Maori wars. So there's eight tribes in New Zealand, and they each have their own haka. And before they'd go to, to war against each other, they'd stop, and they'd perform their own haka. Um, the haka that we're going to do, because you, uh, hopefully you are concentrating, uh, we're going to do a haka later on. The haka we'll do is the kamati haka. That was the one I used to do. That's a new haka that in 20, 2011, 2010, when Tana Umanga became uh, the first Samoan all-black captain, he decided that he needed a haka that encompassed all New Zealand, not just uh, the Maoris. So the Kamati Haka is, uh, in simple terms, is life is life, death is death. If you take up my challenge, I'm going to take your breath away so you can't fight us any longer. So it's a very good way to start work. And there's also a celebration, a celebration of, of Haka. When they came back from the war, they do a celebration Haka to the, the wives and the children and the girlfriends uh, back there. It also, in terms of the military, and if you want to really know what the haka is, just Google haka and you'll see our returned servicemen coming back in coffins and their comrades performing a haka when they've been carried off, off the plane. So that is haka. Um, as John I said, uh, <laughs> my name is Sean Fitzpatrick and I used to play for the All Blacks. I had 12 of the most amazing years playing for the All Blacks. I never, ever thought I'd be an All Black. And to be an All Black for 12 years, and six of those years, I was captain from 1992 to 98. Um, I played 92 internationals, and 
and for my American friends, I always say that an international is when one country plays another country. Uh, they don't quite get that. Um, and of those 92 internationals, 51 was, was his captain of the All Blacks. Uh, so an amazing career. Uh, we now live up here in the UK. Uh, my wife and I turned 40 20 years ago. And uh, we, de we decided it was a chance to do a bit of MOE, to take the kids out of school. And we came up here for two years. And we're still here. And uh, had an amazing time. And I spent quite a bit of my time now just telling my story. I'm not a leadership guru, um, but what I do is I tell my story of this little fat kid growing up in New Zealand and then going on to work for not even arguably for the most successful sporting team ever. In the last 100 years, the All Blacks um, have won about 80% of their games played, which is quite phenomenal in terms of how they sustain that culture of success, how they continue year in, year out, wanting to be better. Uh, at the moment, we're number three in the world, uh, which really hurts us. Um, Rugby World Cup is this year, and in a few months, in September it starts. And at the moment, we're really disappointed that we're number three in the world, because um, we like winning. And uh, these are the, the girls and the boys. Uh, we've got uh, six brands um, under the All Black banner. At the moment, the girls are number one. They're the sevens, and they're the world champions in, in the 15s game. And they are phenomenal, unbelievable, which is, which is really, really cool for us. And then we have the Maoris. Um, we've got the All Blacks, and we've got a New Zealand uh, 15s side that, that travels. Um, so I played from 1986 to, to 1997. In 1997, I had a knee injury, and I was 34 years old. And that was the end of my career, basically. And in 98, I tried to get back playing. Um, but I couldn't, and I couldn't get it right. And so then in 98, we decided that it was time to call it quits. And I went to a press conference to announce my retirement. And the first question I was asked was, what was the most memorable game you played for the All Blacks? And I didn't even have to think about it. I said, 1993. When we lost to the British and Irish Lions in Wellington, New Zealand, it was the worst game I played for the All Blacks. I remember that game more than any other game I played. And I can still remember walking off the field and saying to Gavin Hastings, who was the captain of the Lions, I said, Gav, you watch this little nation. This little nation of three and a half, four million people. You watch them turn on us because we haven't delivered a performance that's worthy of the All Black jersey. Went downstairs into the changing room, and there the All Blacks were sitting. And I said to them, make a mental note of the way we feel now, and make sure we never, ever feel this way again. Never feel this way again. That we've let down the All Black jersey. That we haven't performed like we should. That we've prepared badly. And we should never have lost like that. And we did, and I, to digress for a minute, my father was an All Black. And unfortunately for Dad, who passed away 10, 12 years ago, he was involved in the last all-black team that lost to the Welsh in 1953. He never went back to Wales. <laughs> he never forgot about it. My mother, in 1989, we toured Ireland and Wales. Mum had to go by herself because Dad would not go back to Wales. His opposite number, the great Cliff Morgan, would ring Dad 
every year to say, Brian, you have to come back to Cardiff for the reunion of the 53 Welsh team. He'd slam the phone down and <laughs> never going back to that bloody place. I also wanted to, to write a book um, about my time of captaining the All Blacks. Uh, in New Zealand, you can tell your life story once, tax-free, so we all do that straight away. <laughs> but I wanted to, to write a, a story about my time of, of leading the All Blacks, because I, I never wanted to be the All Black captain. There was literally no one else, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. And there was five key messages that came out in the book that I didn't even know had been ingrained into me in this little kid growing up in New Zealand. And all I, want, all I want you to do is to take yourself in terms of everything I'm telling you to draw your own analogies from your life away from your work to your life at home, where you came from, um, and then obviously to your life at work. And for me, I was a little fat kid, uh, never thought I'd be an all black. Uh, in New Zealand, you get thrown on a set of scales. Uh, I was the youngest of four children, uh, two boys, two girls. Brother was five years older, so he was playing rugby already. I was four and a half years old, and I was pleading with mum to let me play. Come on, come on, mum, please let me go down to the rugby club and get, go to the weigh-in. At four and a half years, I'm a June baby, so we play in March, so I was four and a half years old, and hopped on the set of scales. And whatever weight you are, that's the team you play in. So I hopped on the set of scales, and the man looked at it, and he went, oh, you're over there with the 12-year-olds. Um, <laughs> Which, which, was, which was not a lot of fun. And, and out of the book, there was, there was two messages from my father, and I can still remember kicking the ball around the backyard. We'd have a test match in the backyard with all the kids around the neighbourhood every afternoon. And Dad was mowing the lawns, and he stopped mowing the lawns. And he came over and he said, boys, stop what you are doing. He said, you do not need to play rugby union. All I want you to do is to play a team sport, and make sure you bloody enjoy it. It's the best advice I can give to any parents in the room. Let them, and every sport today is a team sport. It doesn't matter what you're doing, you've got people around you. And make sure you enjoy it. I then continued, and I continued to play in the worst rugby teams because of all these big kids. And then I went to Sacred Heart College at the age of 12, to start my secondary school uh, career. And went to the, and it was a rugby school. We had 13 rugby fields, sorry, 12 rugby fields, and a football pitch, and hopped on the set of scales, hoping to play in the third grade, which is under 10 stone, hopped on the set of scales, and I was 13 and a half stone. So I was playing open grade rugby against the big Polynesian boys in Auckland. And went home, said to mum, unfortunately, mum, I'm playing open grade rugby, I'm playing in the second grade. She burst into tears, rang the principal of Sacred Heart College, Brother Roger, and said, Brother Roger, it's Mrs Fitzpatrick here, my son Sean has just come home and told me he's playing open grade rugby. Now, he is only 12 years old and he could get seriously injured. He said, Mrs. Fitzpatrick, he could not only get seriously injured, he could get killed. So, <laughs> in light of that, I'll give him dispensation. But he can play in the third grade, but he won't play in the three A's, the three B's, or the three C's. He's going to play in the worst rugby team at the school, the three D's. My mother said, thank God, put him in that team. And we turned up to field number 13, which was the football pitch, baseball diamond, cricket oval, everything but a rugby pitch. And we were greeted by our accounting teacher, Guy Davis, who was a Fijian, didn't know a lot about rugby, but he changed our lives. Three key messages, which ironically are the three key messages of the All Black success. 
First thing he said to this motley bunch of no-hopers, he said, everyone on this team is equal. No matter who you are, we're all equal. The second thing I want is when you turn up here on a Monday night to field number 13, I want you to turn up with a bit of bloody attitude that you want to be here, that you want to make a difference. And the third thing, which is our mantra without question, he said, all I want from you individually is to be as successful as you can be. Individually, be as successful as you can be. And what was he saying to us? He was saying to us, I want you to be a winner. Winning matters. Winning bloody matters. So we need to talk about it. They talk about winning all the fucking time. <laughs> they talk about winning. And if you talk about it, it changes your attitude. So little Johnny, down at the park, go down Johnny, go and have a great time at the park, play with your mates, have fun, but make sure you win. Then all of a sudden little Johnny's mind changes. Because he thinks, I'm going to have fun, I'm going to play with my mates. But how can I win? Ah, got to learn to kick the ball with both feet, learn to throw with both arms. And if I don't win, at least I know I've given it a bloody good crack. It's the same at work. Because then you realise, little Johnny realises, maybe rugby's not for me. Maybe I need to try another sport. Or maybe I need to get better. It's exactly the same in business. People hang around too long. People aren't good at what they're doing. They get fat and lazy. Take the position for granted. And you can't do that. Winning is not easy. To have an 87% success rate is not easy. Two key ingredients to successful people, businesses, organisation. The first one is preparation. The best prepared people win. They prepare better than most. At the moment, the French are preparing better than most. The Irish are preparing better, I'm talking to rugby here, are preparing better than most, and they're winning. We weren't. In the last two years, we've fallen off a cliff. But unfortunately, with that degree of preparation comes sacrifice, and people aren't prepared to make sacrifice. You know, why have you sat here for the last two days? Because you want to get better. You want to prepare better. And that's what they do. They prepare better than anyone else. Best prepared teams win World Cups, without question, but they make sacrifices. I was in the All Blacks for 12 years. People say, do you miss it? Oh, my God, no, because it took everything out of me. It took everything out of me because it was the number one thing in my life. When I went to work, it was the most important thing in my life. So I had to make sacrifices. I had to make sacrifices with the family. I didn't have any other mates other than rugby players. So when I had moments to be with a family, 100% family, didn't play golf, didn't go to the pub, didn't go on boys' trips, it was all about being the best all-black I could be. So preparation and success is, and, and sacrifice, which is the two key ingredients to successful people. Um, so I, I carried on, went to university. Um, well, I didn't want to go to university. I wanted to be a builder but I wanted to play for the University Rugby Club. You had to go to university, uh, which was a bit of a challenge for me. Um, so I enrolled in a degree, an accounting degree, went to one lecture, that was it, and I became a builder. Um, <laughs> but I got the opportunity to go to the university club, and I liked drinking, I liked being with my mates, I liked smoking, and went to the university club, I was quite good, I had natural ability. Uh, once I, I got through that stage, I had two years in the first 15, 
and my last year at school, I was captain of the New Zealand secondary schools, purely on natural ability. Went to university, to the university club, fantastic, under 21s, I was captain of the New Zealand under 21s, smoking, having a great time. At 20 years old, I'm standing at the bar at the university club with my great mate Grant Fox, who went on to be one of our great all-black number 10s, and we played at school together, and Fox and I standing there smoking away, drinking rum and coke, as we did in those days. And in front of us was our coach at university, who had coached us at school. And his name was Graham Henry, who went on to be one of, the, one of our great all-black coaches. And he looked at the two of us and went, Fitzy and Foxy. He said, if you two stopped smoking and drank a little less, you could be all blacks one day. Right, Dave, he's so bloody stupid, we'll never be all blacks. And the following week, we're down playing for New Zealand under-21s against Marlborough at the top of the South Island. And walking off the field, we were greeted by Colin Meads, who was one of my great heroes, one of our great All Blacks, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. Uh, and he was head of the All Black selectors. And he said, Grant and Sean, if I was picking an All Black team tomorrow, you both would be in the All Blacks. Well, like, bloody hell, we went back to the change room having a cigarette discussing this. <laughs> Seriously. And uh, I said to Foxy, I'm going to stop smoking because I want to be an all black. He said, don't be so stupid, you'll never be an all black. This is in 1984. Uh, sorry, that was 1983. In 1984, Foxy still smokes to this day. Um, he became an all black in 1984 and I became an all black in 1986. So, you know, if you want to carry on smoking, it's probably not going to do you any harm. And you'll, you'll probably... <laughs> But no, I haven't had a cigarette since that day, as I said. Um, and I became an All Black in 1986 on June, June, the, June the 26th. Um, I'm All Black number 871. Um, I used to say it was the greatest day of my life, uh, but my daughter got married last year, so that now is the greatest day of my life. So um, I want to show you a video. I want to show you a video. I want to take you inside the All Blacks uh, now. Um, but I want to talk to you about the legacy of our organisation, how we sustain that culture of success year in, year out. And as I say, you just draw your own analogies from your own lives, from your life at home and your life at work, because your home life's really important. What goes on at home ultimately results in how you perform at work. And, I, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything, anything new, but if you're not happy, happy at home, you're not happy at work, and, and we talk about it all the time. We spend a lot of time talking about where you came from, who you are, what your culture is, what you do, what you don't do. Um, we've obviously have a lot of Polynesians. Um, they do things like Michael Jones, for example, in 1987. He put his hand up and said, hey, guys, I don't drink. We're like, what? You don't drink? Oh, and by the way, I don't play on Sundays. Huh, okay. It's a bit different. Um, but we can work with that, and he'll bring other things to the party. But if he hadn't stood up and said that, we wouldn't have known. So you need to understand where people come from which is really important. As I said, in June 1986, I, I became an All Black. Um, when you play for the All Blacks, you get the right to, to keep that jersey. So I have 92 of these jerseys. Um, but this is the first one that I got on that day. Um, and you can do what you like with them. You can swap them or whatever. But this one is going to stay with me forever. It travels the world, and uh, so don't try and steal it. Um, <laughs> That's, yeah. um, so that's our emblem, that's our national fern, uh, the silver fern, uh, all black stylized, uh, and my uh, plane number was number two, I was a hooker. Um, and I walked into 
Brian Lahore's bedroom on the morning of in June. Uh, we were playing French, the French on the afternoon. And uh, lying on his bed was 21 of these jerseys. And in those days, you couldn't buy an all-black jersey. There's no replica jerseys. The only way you got one of these is by being an all-black. And I walked in there, and Brian Lahore is one of our great all-black number eights. Uh, he's sadly no longer with us either. And he presented me with this jersey. He had coached me at under-21s. Uh, he took a bit of a punt on me. I was only 22 years old. And he presented me with this jersey. And he went, uh, Fitzy, this is your first all-black jersey. You're all-black number 871. You, now being an all-black, are expected to win. And I love saying that. How many of you can say that about what you do? That people expect you to be the best you can be. When they buy products off you, it needs to be the best product. So for us as All Blacks, we're expected to win. And I love that. Even now, even though we're number three in the world, I expect them to beat South Africa tomorrow morning when they play them in New Zealand tomorrow night, New Zealand time. The current world champions. We're in a little bit of disarray, but we're finding our way. So he passed me this jersey, clutching it. And as I walk out, he, he says, just remember, you're expected to win. And I walked out and went back to my bedroom. And I was rooming with a guy called Cowboy Shaw who was a freezing worker from the Manawatu, blindside flanker, old boy. He was 36 years old, old man. And <laughs> I walked him with this jersey and he said, Fatsy, don't get too comfortable with that jersey because you need to prove yourself that you're worthy of this all-black jersey and you'll get your opportunity this afternoon. We're driving to the stadium and there, as we're going to the stadium, there's all mums and dads, painted faces, all-black silver ferns on their faces. And he's down the back of the bus and he yells out, have a look out the window. Have a look out the window, as he told us. He said, every man and boy would change places with you tomorrow. So make sure you deliver a performance that's worthy of this jersey. The legacy of the jersey is more intimidating than any opposition. That's so true. You know, we haven't got a lot of money in New Zealand. These guys who play for the All Blacks could be earning two or three times more money if they went to Japan, if they went to France. But why do they stay in New Zealand? Because they want to wear the All Black jersey. So the legacy is really important. For me as a custodian of the jersey of our All Black brand, that we continue that, that we continue to be successful. Um, 1987, as John said, we won the World Cup in 87. We didn't really know what we were doing. Was this another game for us? The next game is the most important game. And we won that. We played a brand of rugby that no one had really seen before. And we went on this unbelievable run. 88, 89, no one could touch us. We were beating teams by 50, 60 points. And by 1990, uh, we thought we were quite good. And little did we know, our wheels were falling off. Our wheels were falling off. And we came to the World Cup in 91. And we played Australia in the semi-finals, and it was game over. The game was over at half-time, because we hadn't realised that they were actually better than us. We didn't analyse our own performances. We got fat, got lazy, got arrogant. You need to be arrogant to be successful with a degree of humility, but leave it on the field. Unfortunately, that team had taken it off the field, and Australia cleaned us out. Game over at half-time. Unbelievable. And I can still, and I walked off the field, 27 years old, and I walked off the field, and I said to Alan Wetton, our blindside flanker, I said, AJ, 
I'm out of petrol. He said, yes, yeah, so am I. I said, I'm going to retire. I've had enough of this. Won the World Cup, lost the World Cup. Perfect time to leave. And we had to go to Twickenham to watch England play Australia in the final, which was, which was pretty tough. And we flew home. And my wife and I stopped in Sydney on the way home. And on the back page of the Sydney Morning Herald, this is about Thursday, so they won the game on Saturday. On the back page of the Sydney Morning Herald was my opposite number, Philip Kearns. And he's holding the America's Cup in one hand, and he had the Rugby World Cup in the other hand. And it said, the world's best hooker, my position, the world's best hooker, now becomes the world's best sailor. Could have been done some grinding or something. And, and, and I looked at it, I said, darling, I'm the best hooker in the world. And she went, nah, you're a fat bastard. <laughs> Literally as clear as that. And we went home. We went home and had a, had a shocking summer. Um, New Zealand was devastated. Changed the economy, the loss we had. And we went, oh, God. And then by sort of February, I was starting to get she feet. I was only 27 years old. And, I, and she came to me, Bronnie came to me, and she said, you cannot retire. You cannot finish like this. You've got so much more to offer. So I said, okay, let's go. New All Black coach rings me. And he goes, hello, Sean, my name's Laurie Maines. I'm the new All Black coach. I said, yeah, of course I know that, Laurie. He's from the deep south, from Dunedin. And he said, um, would you like to be an All Black again? And I said, Laurie, I would love to be an All Black again. He said, well, you're probably not going to be. <laughs> he said, firstly, you're too fat. Secondly, you're too bloody slow. Thirdly, you're arrogant. And he then said the thing that hurt me most of all. He said, you have lost the respect of the all-black jersey. He said, if you can show me you've changed, in the next six weeks, I might give you an opportunity in the all-black trials. Thankfully for me, I changed. I took everything back out of my life. Stripped everything back to the bare boards. Became fitter, faster, stronger, all those things you had to do. And unfortunately, some of my best mates, who I'd played with through those previous six years, didn't change. They didn't think they needed to change. And he literally did not pick them. Some of the best players in the world, he said, no, nah, unless you change. And it was almost a changing of the way all black teams were selected. In my time, in the first six years and previously, we had one test all blacks. Because we'd employ people, like you all do, we employ people and, oh my God, he's the wrong person. Where now, Laurie said, no, nah, that's not going to happen. We are going to pick the right people. We're going to pick the best people, and then we're going to turn them into great All Blacks. Good people make great teams. And it was literally a changing of the guard. And it took us three years of losing. We, we lost games because we had shit players. And they were. They weren't good enough to be playing Test Rugby. But they were the right people, and ultimately it started to change. We started to get the right people. We started to get great All Blacks. And for me as captain, changed me as a person. Totally changed me as a person because I had to transcend ages, had to mix with the young guys, which I'd never done before. I had to be fitter, had to be faster than these young kids and ultimately it made me a better person. And I can still remember on my third international, we were playing Ireland in Dunedin and knock, knock on, Friday door, on the Friday on my door, bedroom door, and All Black Captain gets his own room, which I, I hated. Normally you share, which is much more fun. So I was there by myself, sort of making a few notes. And the knock at the door was my old manager, a guy called John Sturgeon, who's a coal miner from the West Coast. 
and he was a most wonderful man. He's, he's still alive. And he came and he said, uh, Fitzy, I'd like to have a cup of tea with you. So he came and had a cup of tea. And he said, how are you enjoying this gig of captaining the All Blacks? I went, oh, bloody hating it, actually. And he went, I can see that. He said, do you know why you're hating it? I went, Sturge, you tell me. He said, because you're not being your bloody self. And it's probably the best advice I could give anyone. You need to be comfortable in your own skin. If you're not comfortable in your own skin, you try and be somebody else. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I thought, I lead by actions. Not a great talker. I'm going to lead by actions. Come and follow me. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you think about yourselves. Are you comfortable in your own skin? It's a really good question to ask yourself. And if you're not, you need to do something about it. You need to change, maybe. Maybe to do something else, just to be comfortable. And when you are comfortable in your own skin, John was saying to me, because I'm 60, right? He said, I said, he said, how do you feel? Do you have, oh, my knees are buggered, yeah. But life gets better. The older you get, it gets better. Because you're more and more comfortable in yourself. So the earlier you can do that, do that, the better. The next T2 Leadership Retreat will take place on the 7th to the 9th of May, 2024. To book your place on the ultimate leadership development experience from the People Performance People or for more information, please visit www.trans2performance.com. We had a real issue about the All Black jersey, our players. We have a massive fear of failure, which is good. I encourage you to have a fear of failure. Because if you have a fear of failure, how do you harness that fear of failure? You practice. You think of all the great sports people, particularly golfers, they have massive fears of failure. How do they harness it? They practice, they practice, they practice, they practice. Preparation, 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 sacrifice. So harness the fear of failure, and it's good. I loved it. I loved having that fear of failure that no one was going to beat me. And how do I harness it? By practicing better. Um, so we went through, and 95 went to the World Cup. I thought we had a pretty good team. Uh, we were rated number five in the world when we went to South Africa in 95. Uh, we were by far the fittest team in the world, without, without question. Maybe not the strongest, and, and we lost a final that we could have won. Um, but even that, and I'm still a bit bitter about it, uh, <laughs> all these years on, um, but it taught us a lesson in terms of what was needed to beat South Africa. And we went back there in 96, uh, and that video there of me punching the ground. Uh, was the series win in South Africa in 96, which had never been done before. And went back there in 97, uh, beat them again, um, and, and continued on. So I retired in 97, and I uh, started, there's 35 living all black captains. And we meet once a year um, to talk about our brand. How do we sustain that culture of success? And we created this video, um, it's called Captains. And it's about passing the jersey on to the next generation. And when you think about it, um, the jersey you have and the work you do, uh, we say that we need to pass that jersey on in a better state than what we found it in. And, and it's quite simple. You just need to make sure that you are better than what it was when you received it. You know, the way we're doing it yesterday is not good enough to win tomorrow. When you get out of bed in the morning, do you want to be better than what you were today? Um, and a lot of people don't. Um, but if you're involved in the industry where you want to be better, you want to be high performing, um, you need to have an attitude or people around you that want to be better every day. Because as we saw in 91, we stopped and the world 
past us. Uh, as I said, uh, we now live in the UK. Um, we spend quite a bit of time back in New Zealand. Uh, two daughters, uh, Grace and Eva, they both live in Los Angeles. Uh, we bought them here and they've gone to live there now. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and one of the really cool things I do, I'm the chairman of an organisation called Laureus, which is a, we have a World Sports Awards once a year. And we've got a Sport for Good Foundation um, that we raise about, we've raised about 120 million. Where we put money back into, into projects uh, that use sport as a mechanism for change. And it sort of followed on from 95 with, with uh, the greatest man I've ever met, Nelson Mandela. And he came to our awards in 2000. And we were set up as purely as a celebrating excellence in sport. We were in Monaco and we had an amazing week. Sportsman of the year, sportswoman, sports team, comeback a year, breakthrough of the year, sporting with a disability, action sport. And then after the awards, um, well, sorry, before the awards, um, Johan Rupert, who who's actually set it up, came into the room in front of all these great sporting people, and he said, uh, your founding patron will be Nelson Mandela. We're like, oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And then in walked Nelson Mandela into the room. And he said the words. He said, uh, you have an unbelievable voice that you can change the world. So sport has the power to change the world. Sport has the power to change the world. Um, so we use those words. Um, he's all around, and we have a Sport for Good Foundation. Um, we had a, a summit two weeks ago at, at uh, Tottenham Hotspurs uh, Stadium. Uh, we had 400 uh, people there from over 180 projects globally um, that use sport as a mechanism to change kids' lives. Uh, so it is brilliant. Um, and one of the, the, my underlying sort of memories of that World Cup final was driving away from the stadium in tears, but seeing a black man and a coloured man and a white man dancing down the street together, um, which was purely because he had unified that country. He said, one team, one country, which was not the case. Um, so I wish you well. Um, I think we're going to do a few questions. But just to, just to finish, when people say to me, the grey-headed old man, uh, who did you play for? I'd love saying I played for the All Blacks. And that's how you should feel, who, who you are as a person and who you work for or if you have your own businesses. You should be very proud of what, what you are and especially the people that work for you. I know there's some NHS people in here. You should be so proud of what you do. Day in, day out. And it's the same, same as us as All Blacks. And as soon as we lose that, as soon as we lose that, you've got to move. You've got to change jobs. You've got to do something else. Because it's not, it's not worth it, doing what you're doing if you don't enjoy what you're doing. Um, so thank you. Um, hopefully you're all going to cheer for the All Blacks tomorrow. We've got opportunity now to, to have 10, 15 minutes of Q&A with Sean before we eat the main course. So... I'm sure we're not going to be short of uh, questions, but who's going to kick us off? Chris? Obvious one. Uh, the best player you played with and against? Um, I always say I'm, with, I'm actually with him tomorrow, actually. Um, and there's two reasons why I pick him. Uh, his name is Zinzan Brook. He's number eight. Kicked a drop goal against you guys in, in the World Cup in 95. Um, he has a massive, massive love of the jersey. Hugely proud of being an All Black. And he was probably the best prepared All Black I ever played with. He was, just, he was constantly pushing himself, pushing the envelope, looking for different training techniques. You know, we bought a, uh, a Swiss ball. You know, it's like a Swiss ball. 
1990, we didn't have Swiss balls in New Zealand. And he was away on holiday and found this guy, Peter Czech, in the States. Rang him up, said, could you send something? And that was, that was how he sort of wanted to get better. Our, our training guy in Auckland said, get rid of those bloody things. They're terrible for you. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, and best player I played against? Uh, I don't know, really. Uh, I quite like... See, I, I'd, never be in the, I'd never be in the forwards. I'd always want to be a back. So, probably Serge Blanco. Yeah. He was a big smoker, big drinker. <laughs> he was good, and he was good. Yeah. Who's next? Jack, I'm coming straight to you, mate. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was incredible. Uh, I'm interested in, in pressure. I think a lot what you talked about then in terms of wearing the jersey and, and New Zealand, I think, is such a unique country in that kind of rugby is just so ingrained mm -hmm. in it. So, so then become an All Black must be incredible. How, how do you deal with the, the pressure? Uh, have you kind of had teammates that have kind of crumbled under pressure and, and what coping mechanisms did, so, did you have? So your namesake, Martin Johnson, everyone goes, he's the greatest captain of England's ever had, world-winning captain. Sean Fitzpatrick, great all-black captain. But that's a load of bollocks. Um, it's, it's, about, it's about the people around you. And you think about the best coaches at the moment, the best, well, the best... The reason the All Blacks have sort of turned a bit of a corner is they've got really good people around the head coach. Um, so in terms of dealing with that pressure, um, everyone needs to understand their role and they need to be good at what they do. And if they're not good, uh, we need to find somebody else who can do their job. Like I couldn't throw the, line, I couldn't throw the ball into the lineup when I first started. Uh, playing for university, threw the ball in, every throw I throw, whoever caught it was a good throw. And then I started playing with the big boys and I realised I, I couldn't throw the ball in. And I got thrown out. And I got thrown out for three years. So from 1983 to 1986, I didn't play unless I could learn how to throw the ball in. Um, so making sure that you're good at what you do and the best, at what you, the best in terms of what you And then you just feel comfortable. If you turn up, yeah, sure, there's massive pressure because you're expected to win and all this. But that's good because I know I can trust my mate around me. If you've, got, if you've got good people around you, especially what, what you did, you need to be able to trust people. And yeah. if they're not doing their homework, and, and it comes from within, the culture of the organisation is from within. And we, you know, we, we talk about sweeping the sheds and all those, the dickhead stuff, and you know, we have no dickheads, you know, which is just, it's just normal. We don't have you know, values, honesty, respect, integrity. That's a bloody given. We don't need to talk about it. And so many businesses talk about their values. But when you employ somebody, you need to make sure that they have your values. If you turn out to be the wrong person, that's not your fault. It's my fault, because I employed you. So you need to make sure you employ the right people who understand the culture of your organisation and the pressure that that's going to bring. John, uh, my Hi. question sort of relates to the transition into the professional era, which I think you probably sat yep. on the cusp of. Yes. Uh, so, how do we deal with ego and super talent versus team goal? Dave Brailsford gave us some input on his approach to that last night. So, from a layperson looking in, the, the, the sort of model, Dan Carter, great hero, yeah. uh, versus maybe Sonny Bill. How does the, the All Blacks deal with the size of an ego? for the common goal, and where does the line sort of draw? Sorry, your talent's not... Um, 
so that the no dickhead policy is quite a, a good one for that. Um, like we don't we don't have that, that it's, I'm not, the dickhead thing, right? In my day, they used to get to first base in the early days. Where now they don't get to first base, those guys. They're taken out of the system, or they become one of us. Um, so the Jonah Lomu's, uh, Dan Carter, Richie McCaw, you know those sort of players. They are more team orientated than us. You know, they are uber careful about what they do, what they say, um, how they train. Um, they they set the standards, and you know that's and that's so important that you have that because you, you need superstars. And, and unfortunately, contradicting myself here, we don't have any superstars now in our sport. Where F1, you know, I, I would imagine he would have spoken about. AMG Mercedes, you know, Lewis Hamilton's a bloody rock star. He is a mega star, and he's probably one of the best team people you'll find. Um, but unfortunately, now we don't have any superstars. Where Jonah Lomu was the only global superstar we ever had, and we'll ever have, I think. Um, so, you know, you need to sit people down. If, they, if you think they're, they're getting outside their lane, just bring them back in, just have a chat. Come on, come over here. Let's have a little chat about what you're doing, what you said last night. Everything we do, everything we do, everything we eat, everything we drink, everything we say, is that going to help the team? Is that going to help us win on Saturday? And that's, that's the questions. That's why it's so exhausting. Being the best at what you do is so bloody exhausting. So you can only do it for so long. And it's the same with business. So you, you've got to give everything you've got. And I have, I have this thing where, so for me when I was in All Black, and, and a lot of people won't like this, but it was the most important thing in my life. And my wife knew that. My children knew that. So I made, you know, I missed the birth of a child. I missed, you know, it's just, that's what we chose to do. And we were brought into it. Where probably a better way of qualifying it is, is that while I'm at work, it's the most important thing in my life. <laughs> but when I was at work, it was 24-7, literally. And, and when you're at home, you've got to make the sacrifices at home too. You've got to, just got to, you know, if you've got time to, spare time, you've got to spend it with the family. He works in the city and he, down there at six in the morning, probably has three, three nights a week up in town. Saturday we play golf. Sunday has family lunch. And he thinks he's a family man. I mean, Griff, you're joking. You're talking to a lot of people who have been here for four days and playing golf tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Uh, I'll come to James, then over to you, Wayne. Hi, Sean. Um, so, winning matters, right? Yep. Um, I feel as if I've not won all the time. Mm -hmm. But where I've made my biggest learnings is from failure. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest failure you've had in life, not in sport, in life? And what did you learn from it? Um, well, <laughs> I, haven't done, I haven't done much else, actually. <laughs> um, I, well, in terms of the failures I had in sport was obviously that 91 team, where I was bloody lucky that my wife said to me, you need to get back on the horse, and that I was given, and I was given a chance. Um, biggest failings in life? I don't know. Oh, God, that's a big question. Um, no, no, it's fine. I, I don't, I don't have, have any, any, any things where I think I should have done that or I didn't do that. 
Um, I'm very lucky, you know, our girls are 30, 31 and 25 now, and we're, we're all very close. Um, you know, I'm very lucky. I, my wife and I have, you know, been married since, you know, almost 30 years, 31 years. Um, so we're lucky on that front. Um, no, I haven't got any regrets, I don't think, in terms of disappointments. I, I would love to have won the World Cup in 95. The thing that pisses me off is probably is that 91 more than anything. Though I think I could have been better um, as a person in that, in that, especially in that era, sort of 89, 1991. I let myself down there. I, I, ironically, I had dinner with the captain of that team last night, Gary Whitten, who has been held accountable for what happened. I said to him last night, that's bullshit. You were one of you know, 15 of us that let that down. When? Sean, thank you. Um, you've been at the pinnacle of the All Blacks for many years, and when you say Jonah was a global superstar, I think you were globally recognised as well. So, you know, <laughs> not, don't, not in America. Yeah, don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the thing I'm really interested in is going from that cauldron of, you know, what it, you know what it's like in New Zealand when you lose, for instance, and just the the pressure that's upon you and everything else, and being at the forefront of the All Blacks for so long, and the yeah. transition into suddenly not being an all-black any longer. How did um, you deal with that? I, in terms of the, the pressure of the, of the nation, I think, as a nation, finally we've matured. You know, the sun does come up the next day. Uh, it doesn't affect the economy like it used to when we used to lose. Um, and the transition from... See, I, I was fine. You know, I was, as I said, I had, had a business. Um, I'd wanted to retire in, in 91. Uh, I said definitely after 95, driving to the game with my best mate who was our media liaison officer. I said, Ricardo, win or lose today, I'm retiring. Got back to the pub having a pint. And he said, shit, you've got to come back next year and beat these bastards. And I'm like, hmm, that's a good idea. Uh, and if it wasn't for the knee injury, I, I probably would have played on until 99, which would have been a terrible thing to do. Um, so, and letting go was really difficult. Why letting go was difficult was because I was safe, I was secure, I liked what I was doing, I knew what to do. Um, and a lot of people have that in business, they, they can't let go. They're on that bloody train and, and to jump off it is a, is a big issue. Uh, so I was probably lucky that I had an injury, otherwise I would have had a, a train crash because we, we got cleaned out in the World Cup in 99. Um, so, you know, luckily for me and I had, I had things to do. And I was young enough to, I was 34, so I had, you know, opportunity to do other things and, and still be involved in rugby. Having two girls was great because I didn't have to, well, I didn't have to be involved in rugby. Um, and it was only literally when we came over here in, in 2004 that I got back into to TV. I, I said I'd never work in TV in New Zealand, so then I started working for the Beeb and then for Sky uh, and then, then doing the World Cuts for ITV, which I'm still doing. And that's, all, that's the only TV I'm doing, which is good. Uh, and then I'm involved in, in clubs. I'm on the board of Montpellier in France, Scarlets, and I do a bit of work for Harlequin. So, so that keeps me current in terms of knowing what's going on. Yeah. Darling. Coming across. And New Zealand rugby too. I, I do quite a bit of New Zealand rugby. We've finally, we've finally decided that we needed an office in the UK um, so we can be with the Brussels of the world because they, they sponsor the All Blacks and else. Um, Hi, Sean. Um, you, you, you talked about the culture and how everybody buys into the shirt and there's no dickheads and, you know, you were the captain, so it sounds like a really easy gig. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
I'm just interested in why you think you were selected. As the, what was your attributes? What was it that somebody saw in you to say, you're the captain? What was you bringing to the Well, party? the ironical thing was, there was literally no one else. <laughs> no, seriously, there was literally no one else. His captain was meant to be Mike Brewer. So, so Laurie from the Deep South. And in New Zealand, we still do it, actually. You have a trial of 30 players, and one team is called the Probables. You're probably going to be all blacks. They wear black. And the Possibles wear white. I was the captain of the Possibles, <laughs> right? And his captain was Mike Brewer, and 20 minutes into the game, he blew his calf muscle, and he went past me. He said, Fitzy, I'm gone. I've blown my calf. I thought, oh, straight up. I thought, oh. If you're not going to be captain, who's going to be captain? And literally, he, his hand was forced. And he had to, had to pick me. And it, it, it took me three years to feel comfortable. Because um, it's not easy. It's not lead, leading people is not easy. It's not natural um, if, you, if you're not a born leader. I actually, at the end of the day, I loved it, actually. So I pro and that's the problem. A lot of people don't get the opportunity to express themselves. Because people don't, don't like sticking their hand up. You know. Something we've been talking about is um, a lot's come of come theme is humour. Um, what was a good banter in the All Blacks? And is there one particular thing you like to share that was a particular memory that still makes you laugh today? <laughs> um, <laughs> things I can tell. It's no, we, it's, honestly, what I, what, I love, what I love about it, and like I'm seeing Zinni tomorrow, right? And uh, we haven't seen each other for probably a year. He lives in London. Lives in London. Um, and we tomorrow will hug each other and within a minute we'll be giving each other shit. You know, um, but it's like it's just like a, you know, I was with Andrew Mertens, you know, Gary had dinner last night with Gary Whitten, as I said. Um, it's just a brotherhood. It's just a, you just, you know, it's like a family. So um, we're quite harsh on each other. Like even even now, we're quite quite harsh on each other in terms of what you're doing and what you should be doing. Um, and we and we talk about why we lost games. We have a, we don't have any any reunions of any one team. We have a reunion as the All Blacks, so no no team is 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 more special than the other team. Um, so we have a reunion once a year uh, around one of those tests. I think it was actually tonight uh, in New Zealand before the Springbok game, where they have a reunion and there'll be probably 300 All Blacks there, and they can bring they get, they get three tickets, which was the nowadays was your mum and dad and your wife or your girlfriend. So they get three tickets and you have to show up, otherwise you don't get the tickets to the game the next day. Uh, but it's cool. Just the only thing is that I'm working my way up the list because all the old boys are falling over. <laughs> Last few questions. Anybody else? Spence. I'd probably find this out in Google, but I'm going to ask you. In my observations, every other country seemed to play in the national colours. Why all black? Why black? Because, because from my observations... All New Zealand national teams seem to wear black. Uh, no, we have the all whites. All oh, right, okay, okay. Which is our football team. Oh, okay. That's black, what, uh, the black sticks. Are they, are they, is are our they particularly team? successful? That might be why I haven't seen them. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, you know, do you know the reason why that? Uh, so when they were touring the uh, the Invincibles in 1905, they're touring the UK. They're away for nine months on a tour, and they, I think they played 38 games or something stupid. And they were playing in the north of England, and they beat the north of England by, I don't know, whatever. And the report from the game was sent in, and the proofreader at the paper was reading it, 
and he he read it and they and the guy had written this all black team they ran like all backs they were just everyone was like a back so they ran like all backs and he couldn't work out what all backs was and he looked at the color of the jersey and he went ah oh, he must have meant all blacks and that was literally that was literally how it started yeah. so it became the all blacks rather than the new zealand I think they called the New Zealand, well, it was a New Zealand army team and a New Zealand, whatever that was, yeah. So Sean's going to stay for the main course. He's, as soon as I said Beef Wellington, he was like, I'll stay. <laughs> um, so he's going to join us over on the table and he'll ha happily get any photos. I'm going to take one more question if somebody wants to ask one, but he's going to stay, so get some photos, have a one-to-one -one chat after the main course, if that's all right. Is Callum, are we going to go with Callum for the last question? Is it a good one? Callum, is it a good one? Is it a good one? Come on, Cal. When I was about 10, my, f my first computer was a PlayStation. I had John Lomo Rugby. Yeah. Uh, and, and that seems the most memorable for me. You mentioned Mertens. I remember Wilson. I remember yourself, Sean. But John Lomo was my hero. Yeah. How good was he? Unbelievable. It was just sad if, if you don't know. He's no longer with us. He died yeah. 10 years ago, unfortunately, of a kidney disorder, um, which we never knew. We never knew he had a kidney disorder. Uh, he couldn't load fitness. Uh, so hence he wasn't going to go to the World Cup in 95 because he wasn't fit enough. Um, and then with the injury to Eric Rush, he got brought back in. And, and the rest is history in terms of that. But he was the most loving man. Uh, he was very timid, very shy off the field. And the way he expressed himself was, was on the field, really. And you know, rugby saved his life. He came from South Auckland. Uh, his, his uncle, he was with his uncle at a shopping centre one day. And his uncle got killed with a machete. Um, and he was, you know, and then luckily he went to a school called Wesley College, a boarding school, uh, and basically literally saved, saved his life, and just phenomenal what he did. And I, I say he was a global superstar, and he was, but he literally did that in the space of five games um, because he got dropped in 96. When we went back there in 96, he, he wasn't up, up to speed, and, and until he had a kidney, had kidney replacement, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't place contact sport afterwards. So he had the kidney placed around the back, around the back. So in terms of um, being able to play play sport, um, and, and ultimately that, that failed, and he had a massive heart attack. Um, but yeah, we're we're lucky that he was part of our our sport. He, <laughs> we saw him in uh, in 1993. We were playing Australia and Dunedin, and in those days there was curtain raisers between schoolboys. So Australia was playing New Zealand. And this number eight for the New Zealand schoolboys scored four tries in the space of about 10 minutes. And we said, who's that kid? And it was Jonah Lomu. And in the space of nine months, he was on the All Blacks. Youngest All Black ever. Wow. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, Thank please stand in ovation for Sean Fitzpatrick. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Are you a fan of our podcast? If so, make sure you're following us on all of our social media channels. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter by searching Trans2 Performance. By following us, you'll have access to exclusive content, special announcements, and more. Join the T2 community today.